I'm your host, Mark Bosco, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to a special edition of The Optical. Uh, Some of you might know that due to some personal circumstances that have cropped up, I've been away for a little while, but I'm back now. Not quite 100% uh, back in the game, but I didn't want to let January end without giving you an episode. So we're going to do a replay of of the interview we did in episode two with Howie Weed, but hopefully this time it'll sound a little bit better than it did before with some better audio post-production techniques and noise reduction so without further ado, please welcome Howie Weed, longtime ILMer, model maker, and now digital artist. How, how should I best describe you? I think that's not, not so bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, st- I, st- I started out being a, a creature maker uh, oh, really? on, the, on Gremlins way back in the day, and that was my first paying gig. And uh, since then, I've sort of been sliding around uh, depending on where the work is. So I've been a makeup artist on uh, The Fly and some other projects. And then I slid over to uh, hard surface model making in the ILM model shop and uh, actually opened my own little boutique uh, model making company with a partner of mine, John Goodson, uh, called Renegade Effects. And then uh, all the while staying employed at ILM, I transitioned over to uh, CG model making uh, from the model shop to the CG department, computer graphics department, um, right around the time uh, the, uh, Jurassic Park, The Lost World was happening. And that's the department I've been in ever since. So I'm a modeler and a painter in the computer as well. Oh, wow. So we're also doing, um, in this episode of Cinefx that we're kind of following along with, uh, there's also a retrospective article on Greg Jean's work. Oh, Greg's awesome, yeah. Yeah, I worked with Greg on on uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, building the uh, the new Enterprise. Really, uh, he and Bill George, yeah, and uh, it was a great experience because you know Greg's legendary, and uh, just just being able to you know be working side by side with with that guy and hearing his stories and watching him work was a, was a fantastic experience. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah, T- take us through what what is involved in building. Uh, you know, like a miniature for a movie. What's what's kind of the process that's usually taken? Usually, the design of the whatever we're going to be working on has been figured out in an art department, either down in LA or at Industrial Light and Magic. We have an awesome art department there with about twenty guys that are pumping out enough stuff to put out a, a coffee table art art of book every week. <laughs> so, generally speaking, in the model modeling department and CG, or even in the model shop, we would get these beautiful pieces of artwork, color artwork, and we'd also get like front, side, back views of it, sort of orthographic, like a blueprint. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's sort of up to us to discuss it amongst ourselves and and decide, you know, okay, how are we going to see this in the shot? Are we get really going to get really close? Or is it going to be just flying by with a big motion blur on it? Mm-hmm. Or um, does it explode? If so, <laughs> that's, a whole nother, that's a whole nother ball of wax. And then what scale should we build it at? So there's this big conversation that happens before we even get started. Huh. Um, but once we figure out what we're going to do, then um, in the practical model world, um, there's about a dozen different ways you could put something together. I think if you put a dozen model makers in front of the same artwork and said, okay, build this, you've got you know two weeks, go, mm. everyone would run in an opposite direction because they'd <laughs> all be building it a different way. Hmm. I mean, some people would build it in cross-section, like they would cut out 
little profiles of whatever it is. Let's say it was a spaceship. Mm-hmm. They would build out little little profiles and stack them, uh, and then fill in between with foam and skin that with uh, fiberglass and sand that all down and uh, to get a surface that looks like the artwork. Other people might sculpt the whole thing out of clay and and mold it, or you know, another person might. Uh, sculpt it just like a, like a surfboard out of foam and then vacuum form over huh. it to get the surface. So it's basically you're just using your your eye and your and your whatever your strengths are to kind of come up with a uh, a surface and or that looks like the artwork and that will accomplish the goal of the shot. Hmm. So it's it's actually a really fun process. If you work with a lot of different model makers, you get a lot of different approaches. If you work with somebody who builds uh, model airplanes, they're going to build that like they build a model airplane. Or if you work with someone who's a sculptor, they're going to start bringing out big bags of clay and start pushing the clay around. So, yeah, there's no wrong way to do it unless it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's actually a lot of fun. It's, it's, uh, you know, now being in the CG department, there's, it's a lot more uh, standardized and there's a certain expectation of how you're going to use it using technology only. Mm. But in the model shop, it was really just, you know, uh, just go, go for it and, and, and do a great job and do it however you'd like. You you were saying if uh, if it has to explode, there's more involved. What's the difference there? Yeah, yeah. There was a point at which in one of the Star Trek movies that we had to see the entire dish um, explode. Is this in Star um, Trek Three? Yes. Okay. We had molds of the Enterprise dish that were. It was a dish that was about uh, three and a half feet across, and so we had to fill it with something. And uh, and cast it really really thin because the pyrotechnicians were going to bring primer cord and lace the entire interior of our model with primer cord and detonate it that way. And primer cord's pretty powerful stuff. <laughs> so, but we still wanted to take no chances that bigger pieces would hold together and would ruin the shot because they would be shooting at super high speeds, which would give us the slow motion or gigantic scale effect when it, we would look at it at normal frame rate. Mm. So. Uh, we made the skin of the Enterprise, we cast it really thin out of this gel coat, which is um, the first part of doing like a big fiberglass shell. If you were going to make a boat, mm-hmm. you would start with a gel coat, which is has no structural integrity whatsoever. It's just like thin plastic, like uh, frosted flakes or something like that. And oh, you're it's just like painting. The, the resin that holds the fiberglass together. Exactly. Normally. And it and once it sets and gets rock hard, it, you know, it just basically has no strength all on its own. It's just meant to look pretty. So <laughs> we would paint the mold with that and then really carefully take the mold away. And so we had this sort of like wafer thin uh, shell that we could then uh, fill with something. And we started out with model parts because that's what we have. We have shelves and shelves of really cool model parts. And we were trying not to take any cool stuff because it was, you know, potentially all going to just end up in the dumpster. <laughs> and we wanted to have, you know, it's hard to find really great model kits and have a good supply of those. So we were using like the trees, you know, that the model parts are connected to, not mm-hmm. necessarily the, the cool stuff. And I think we went through every model kit we had and taking all the trees and all the like little nurbles that were, that were crappy in it. And we poured it in there and it, it probably filled up one-tenth of the model. And so we had to think, well, you know, what, when this thing explodes, it's got to look like it's full of, you know, <laughs> hall, hallways and, you know, whatever would be in there. So we came up with the idea of using uncooked pasta as oh. a, a substitute. So, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you go over to the uh, Italian pasta aisle, there's all kinds of shapes and things and they're all um, 
uh, you know, that kind of pasta color. Mm -hmm. So we bought all sorts of different ones, like flat, really big flat sheets for, you know, doing uh, lasagnas and lots of <laughs> like, you know, s string spaghetti. Mm -hmm. And uh, we brought it over to our spray booth and dumped it all out onto a table and sprayed it primer gray. So suddenly everything sort of looked like a surface of a wall or a pipe. And that's what we kind of pre-broke up a little bit and filled the thing with, with just pasta. Oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the end effect, it looked pretty effective. I couldn't tell the difference between what the model pieces were and where the pasta was. So it, <laughs> and really, I think, you know, we overthought it a little bit. It was, it was just, it was over so fast. It was just pub boom, you know, even a super high frame rate. Yeah. I think when we were watching it on screen, uh, after we shot it, you know, we had no idea when it exploded. It was just like, poop. <laughs> and it was gone. So the next, we waited, you know, this is back in the days of you had to send your film to the lab and right. then wait overnight and you come in the next morning and go in the screening room and, and see what happened. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember, uh, you know, the, when, you, when you're watching film like that, uh, the, the, the model is usually lit really, really brightly mm -hmm. because for the super high frame rate, uh, it demands that kind of, uh, for depth of field, so everything looks sharp and sharp like an, like an actual large object would look. Right. Um, and also because the high frame rate really uh, sucks up the light. So at first you're looking at the model and it's just this blown out kind of white halo and then the frame rate catches up and everything gets down to the correct exposure. And when it exploded, it was, it was pretty cool. I think, we, I think there was a, a universal ooh, ah, in the screening room, but it was over pretty quick. It was like you know, a second and a half and it was, <laughs> it was kerploded. Wow. Did you get involved with the uh, photography of the miniatures as well? Or? You know, we... Um, Lots of times uh, we'll set up our model on this on the sound stages, and there's a couple of days of uh, the camera operators bringing their equipment in and all the lighting guys being there. Mm. And we provide what's called stage support. That means if the camera touches the model or somebody you know drops something on it or something, <laughs> we're there to fix it. Or if if when they look through the camera, they see something that looks kind of odd, mm -hmm. even though it looks fine from some other angle, then we might go in there and uh, glue some model pieces to the model to kind of distract your eye or, you know, click, click it off or repaint that area. So there's usually a couple of days of that. And, they, and the, the cinematographer will typically shoot what they call wedges, which is the model at different exposures, mm. um, all the way up and down the f-stop range of the camera. And uh, they'll maybe start adjusting lighting. Usually, actually, the lighting never stops until we actually shoot the model. Um, they're tweaking the lighting. They're moving flags and, and lights around up until the last possible second. Um, and it usually looks, by the time they're done, it looks like a jungle around <laughs> that model. Like You can't even hardly see the model through all the lighting stands and everything. And wow. uh, yeah, yeah. And then that's usually when they want something changed. So you have to kind of do this dance through all of these lighting stands and stuff and not touch anything. It's like keep away <laughs> and, and then reach way out and like with your little tiny paintbrush and like, uh, you know, paint something a little darker gray and then try to get back out without touching anything. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah. And then um, there's usually a day when we look at the wedges, which uh, we do uh, on a light box on the stage. So you would see, you know, the, the ship at various exposures from dark to light. And you kind of, with an eye loop, just kind of go back and forth and decide which one has the best, like overall look. Mm. And if it's a compositing shot, meaning, 
you know, they're going to replace the background later with a Starfield or something, that can also kind of factor into it a little bit. You know, geez, maybe we should, maybe we should pick slightly like maybe one stop overexposed so that it's a lot easier to extract a mat, which, you know, we had no computers back in the day. Right. It all had to be photochemically extracted. Um, and it gives them some range to fiddle with the final exposure. So, yeah, I mean, there was this back and forth, back and forth. Everyone's really concerned. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, we just did all this all together, the lighting guys, the camera guys, the model guys, all on stage together. And a lot of times we also shot things in smoke. Uh, so we'd, we'd smoke up the uh, room with um, what is basically baby oil. It's a process where you would make the whole room look like it's filled with smoke to kind of give a sense of aerial perspective or a depth, you know, like kind of a depth to things. Mm-hmm. So things further away from the camera are, are a little more faded out. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of like you're looking at a skyline of a city and the buildings closer to you are, are richer and sharper and the ones in the background are a little more hazed out by the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So we kind of recreate that atmosphere with kind of this fog of atomized baby oil in the air. <laughs> And that was always interesting because you couldn't contain that baby oil. It was everywhere. So this fog would fill the entire company. It would go down the hallways and (laughs) into people's work areas. And people would sort of ignore it. You know, you just sort of walk by through this fog and there'd be all these signs on the stage say, you know, shooting in progress, please do not come inside. And and it was, it, I always liked that part of it where, you know, there's like this mystery fog and there's all these signs <laughs> warning everyone. And you're like going into this darkened stage with these millions of lights. And yeah, it was always really cool part of the show. <laughs> that, that should be good stuff to breathe in too, I expect. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a laxative if you stay in there too long. So <laughs> oh, no. you don't want to, you don't want to breathe too, too deep. <laughs> but, you know, they, they atomized that stuff so fine. Um, the, it would look like a 55-gallon metal barrel, like an oil drum, mm-hmm. and, and a hose going into it. And out of that was all of this fog. Hmm. And so um, they would use literally a teaspoon of baby oil to fill an entire stage. So you wow. weren't re- you're breathing that much. Huh. But, uh, yeah. So you said you started in like doing creature effects. How did you get into that? Well, I, um, I was in film school. Back, back, back in the olden days, <laughs> I was uh, I was in film school, and I, I knew I wanted to be in the industry somehow, but I couldn't quite figure out how I was going to fit in there. And so, I was taking cinematography classes, and I was taking you know editing classes, and and everything at San Francisco State University. And mm-hmm. there was a small independent horror film being made in San Francisco by a company named Footloose Films. And the way they made the movie was by putting up little advertisements on telephone poles all over San Francisco with like a picture of a vampire on it and <laughs> saying, do you want, to, you want to work in the movie industry? And so me, me seeing that, I just you know, took one of the phone numbers off and called them and, and got involved. And it was just this small group of people making this horror film. And at that point, when I jumped in, they'd been making it for two years already. And they, they uh, would teach you how to use a camera and how to uh, light a set um, in exchange for you working on their movie. And uh, they just did it on weekends and holiday breaks and that kind of thing. And they actually, and when they had meetings or classes to teach you these things, they'd pass the hat. And that's where they got the money to buy the film stock and the, the bulbs and pay for lighting and whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like the best. It was way better than any film school <laughs> you could imagine because the, they were going into war on these sets and you were going to be the crew. Like you would, it wasn't like, you know, you, you were taught some abstract, you know, 
something out of a book and then someday maybe you get your hands on a light and you could try it. And it was like you were right in there, mm. you know, be, being the lighting guys, but you're dragging the cables, hooking up the power to the main grid and all that kind of stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. So through that, I started helping the special effects guys out because it was sort of this <laughs> um, uh, misfit toys kind of group of people who uh, <laughs> who I was sort of uh, attracted to right away. And there was opportunities there because really nobody knew anything about it. And, and so even if you had a garage and some tools, you were in. Nice. I thought, terrific, I've got a toolbox. I can help these guys. This is great. This is something I can do. And uh, I was always been a really, you know, I love to build stuff kind of guy. And um, there were a few, a few guys in there that had already built some decapitated heads. And that was a big effect where someone held up a decapitated head. And, um, and I got involved by uh, offering to figure out how to make fake blood. And they said, great. <laughs> uh, could you make us five gallons of fake blood for this coming weekend? And uh, no problem. So <laughs> I, back in my garage, I, I, you know, there, was, there was no internet back at that point. So I was going over like the two books you could buy on, on makeup. You know, there was a Dick Smith book and mm-hmm. another one, there's a Corbin book on stage, stage makeup. And I found some notes. And so I made it out of corn syrup and red, du- red food coloring and a little, little bit of zinc to make it uh, opaque. Mm-hmm. And I came up with a pretty good recipe. And one of the secrets, by the way, if, if there's anybody out there who wants to make fake blood is uh, coffee. Get some instant coffee, put it in a put it in a cup with a little bit of hot water, and kind of get a get a kind of gooey pasty pastiness to it, and put that in your recipe. Otherwise, you're going to get something that looks like strawberry jelly. It's really bright. <laughs> you get this coffee in there, and everything has that kind of crimson, dark, kind of creepy look, and it really and it looks good spread over your skin. So I made five gallons of this stuff. We went to the set. We used it. We had it in Hudson sprayers where we were spraying it on actors who were stabbing people and things like that. It was, and we did it all in a church, so that was really cool. <laughs> and um, in the middle of the night, they let us they let us in the church in San Francisco uh, from you know eleven o'clock until like four o'clock in the morning. And I remember, I remember somebody came to me and said, you know, okay, I think that's it for the blood. Um, well, go ahead and get rid of it. And uh, so I. I just said, okay, and I picked up the five gallons of blood and I walked out into the streets of San Francisco and I saw a grating <laughs> and, I, and I just poured it down the, the grating and I kind of a, did a sloppy job. I kind of like, you know, just turned the bucket upside down all at once and it kind of splashed all over, but it was dark. It was really dark and outside, so I couldn't <laughs> see what it looked like. And then I went back in and helped the shoot and then about six o'clock in the morning, we were done and I walked outside and there was a fire department out there and a police car and they were all standing around what looked like a pig had been slaughtered somewhere out there because there was blood everywhere and I just sort of looked looked kind of at them and and they were just scratching their head and trying to figure out what had happened and uh, I just sort of walked over to my truck and, and kind of took off and didn't bother, bother I was afraid I was going to get in trouble or something but um, from that, anyway, that's a long way around saying I, I made some connections with some really cool people mm-hmm. uh, who were doing effects. And one of them, uh, his name is Brent Baker. He's a fantastic mold maker down in Los Angeles. He had gotten a hold of a phone number for a guy named Chris Wallace. And Chris Wallace, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not yet. Uh, okay, well, you have, to, you have to look him up. He's a terrific guy. Uh, and he was putting together a shop for a movie called Gremlins. And he had just left Industrial Light and Magic's Creature Shop uh, after having done the dragon for a uh, close-up dragon for Dragon Slayer. Mm-hmm. And he was also working on, uh, he did the melting head for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and um, he was working on, 
I can't believe you left ILM to work on Gremlins for this because I think it was just such a long shot that Gremlins was going to get made. But hmm. he was right in the middle of doing creature design work for Jedi and like do, making small uh, maquettes for George Lucas to kind of approve or, or you know, ask for more. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was approached by Warner Brothers and Joe, Joe Dante, the director, to uh, maybe work on this Gremlins project and see if they could uh, together all get the studio to do it. Hmm. So my friend had Chris's phone number. And so he ended up getting a job there as a mold maker. And right towards the end of that show, there was like three parts to the show. There was, and there was this big push at the end to make hundreds and hundreds of gremlins. Uh, they needed more people. And so my friend recommended me. I went in for an interview and got a job there. And at that point, I was in film school. Hmm. And I thought, well, do I want to go to film school or, or, or do I want to take a job working on a movie? It's like, well, that's the goal is to get on a movie someday, somehow. Because, you know, how do you do it? Nobody knew. Um, so I just, I said, yeah, you know, great. And I figured I'd probably have that job working in the creature shop for Chris Wallace for, you know, maybe a few months. And then I'd go back to school. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a cool experience. But one thing led to the other. And then the ball just kept rolling. And once Gremlins was over, then it was Romancing the Stone. And then it was Enemy Mine. And, you know, it just kept going and going. And I just did not expect that. So, oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah, the the tentpole industry back then didn't exist, so there wasn't this you know uh, summer full of you know huge uh, tentpole movies. There was you know maybe if you were lucky one or two big movies during the summer, and a bunch of really low budget type films, and that was normal. So the chances of you know a huge project fall, keep falling in your lap consecutively, it just seemed like a dream. Like that's yeah, never that's not going to happen. So you know we'll just <laughs> do this one project. You'll have one more summer in the sun where you get to do something cool, and then you're going to have to go back to school and figure out how the heck to get a job in the film industry. <laughs> so so yeah, it just kept going. Who knew? You know, wow. romancing the stone. What creatures were in that? Uh, the alligators. <laughs> the alligator. Yeah. Uh. Look at those choppers. <laughs> yeah. The. Uh, the last shot in that where the bad guy is holding the diamond, mm-hmm. or the what is it? It's not a diamond. What, what is, is the stone? Is it? <laughs> it's a ruby or is it an emerald? I can't remember. Anyway, emerald. I think maybe. That, that that baseball sized stone. Yeah, uh, yeah. We worked on the hand that gets chomped off, <laughs> which was a gloved hand, so that was an easy one. But also the alligator itself that has to jump up out of the water and chomp off the hand. And my part of it actually that was sculpted by Chris Wallace and Rick Baker together. And they're good friends from way back, and uh, they they just sort of spent a month just sitting on wooden apple boxes, uh, sculpting this alligator, kind of in a standing up position. And uh, I was it was a very cool experience for me because I was a, you know a huge Rick Baker fan at that point, and uh, so I kind of got to know him and uh, got to be just sort of a helper outer kind of a guy, you know, hey, anybody, you know, need more sculpting tools? Can I sweep up Mr. Baker, Mr. Wayless? <laughs> you know, and, and so then at the end of their sculpting, I got to help mold it, which was interesting because we we had sculpted the the alligator out of water-based clay, like pottery clay, mm-hmm. and uh, we needed to mold it. And we had these kits of platinum-based silicone left over from some other project, and that's what we wanted to use since this was kind of a budget project. Mm-hmm. And uh, platinum-based silicone reacts horribly with water. It will not cure against water. It'll just stay a goopy mess. So oh, no. I remember we got like 10 cans of crystal clear spray. So it's like sort of like you know industrial hairspray. Uh-huh. And we hosed that water-based sculpture down with like 10 cans of this stuff, <laughs> hoping that we created a barrier thick enough to resist the water so that when we painted the silicone on there, it would set. 
And uh, it did, <laughs> thankfully. But there was this whole – the entire time we were working on it, we're like, what if it doesn't set? I know, I know. So, <laughs> you know, we finally peeled it off and the surface was cured. We were like, oh, thank goodness. You know, we, we live enough to fight another day. But uh, then the actual um, the actual casting was fiberglass, and it was on sort of a big seesaw type thing because this thing had to jump out of the water, and uh, so you'd have one person on one end of the seesaw pushing down, and the and the alligator could rise up on the other side. Hmm. And uh, I remember the big the big uh, physical challenge there was the alligator would fill completely with water when it was underwater. You know, you couldn't really have it uh, sealed because then it would be like a balloon trying to get to the surface and oh. you would never get it under the water. So we uh, we drilled some like little holes on the bottom so that there would be a place for water to drain uh-huh. and tried it out. And we could not get that thing to pop out of the water. I think we had five people <laughs> on that seesaw and it would just not come up. So ultimately, we got our Dremels out and we put huge slots in the bottom of the alligator at first at first along the scale line so we're like well we're hiding that you know because it's in the scale lines and there'll be water and don't worry about it and even that wasn't enough we needed the water to basically fall out of the thing so it could jump up quickly so in the end the the underside of this thing was just sort of this like catacomb of huge holes everywhere and um, and is and that worked you know if you had a, like three guys pushing as hard as they could you could get the thing to come up out of the water at a relatively okay rate and and we had it so that you know, the jaws could snap open and closed and that kind of thing wow it's always interesting when you you know it's one of the things we talk about in uh, when we work in the model shop is that one you'll be put on something that you know nothing about, like an alligator. Like, oh, yeah, I know what alligator is, but do you really know everything about alligators and every <laughs> little kernel of their eye sculptures and how everything works? Because you will by the time this is over. Mm. So that happens a lot where you learn a lot, intense amount of information about something really specific on every show. Then there's the, just the physical challenges of doing something like having something pop out of water where, you know, you say, like, what's the big deal about that? And then you try to do it. And you're like, oh, wow, this is really hard. Okay, we have to be... <laughs> come up with some ideas here so it's always that's always a challenge you know that's kind of liked about that and always a learning experience we'll be back with howie weed in a minute but now it's time for the optical trivia contest brought to you by cinefx cinefx 144 is out now with coverage of in the heart of the sea ron howard's film about the attack of the whaling ship essex by a monstrously large whale The film's action was realized in part through visual effects delivered by Double Negative, Rodeo Effects, and Scanline, along with special effects supervisor Mark Holtz, engineer Gimbals, and in-camera storm effects. The Martian, director Ridley Scott's screen adaptation of the best-selling novel by Andy Weir, featured visual effects by Framestore, including large-scale dust storms, planet environments, and dynamic space shots. Special effects supervisor Neil Corbold orchestrated the film's practical in-camera effects. Issue 144 also covers Everest, the gripping tale of a 1996 mountain climbing expedition that met with tragedy and terror, assisted by artists at Framestore, Reykjavik Visual Effects, Important Looking Pirates, One of Us, Union Visual Effects, and Stereo D. And last but not least, Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro's stylish gothic horror story brought to life by special effects supervisor Michael Inanen and makeup effects supervisor Jordan Samuel along with Del Toro's longtime collaborators at DDT Efectos Especiales and visual effects at Mr. X. But that's not all. Cinefix has gone from quarterly to bi-monthly. That's right, instead of every three months, it's now every two months, getting your Cinefix fixed to you even faster. That means very soon, Cinefix 145 will be shipping. 
with coverage of Star Wars The Force Awakens with the speeding Millennium Falcon filling up the front cover. Man, it is a gorgeous shot. Cinefix talks to visual effects supervisor Roger Goyet, special effects supervisor Chris Corbold, special makeup effects supervisor Neil Scanlon, and artists at Industrial Light and Magic, Base FX, Kelvin Optical, Blind LCD, Prop Shop, and Imaginarium Studios. Whew. The Revenant, with visual effects by ILM, One of Us, Cinecite, MPC Montreal, Soho VFX, and Vitality Visual Effects, and Creature Effects supervised by Mark Rappaport. Ex Machina and double negatives, over 300 robot shots for the film, with an additional 250 VFX shots delivered by Milk VFX, Utopia, and WebFX. Spectre, the latest Bond adventure with Chris Corbold orchestrated practical effects on stage and on location, and artists at Double Negative, Cinecite, ILM London, MPC, Peerless, and Blue Bolt delivering spectacular visual effects shots. And The Finest Hours, an epic disaster film about the real-life Coast Guard rescue with VFX by MPC, Mr. X, and Scarecrow VFX. Whew! All in Cinefix 144 and 145, both available to order now on Cinefix.com. For your chance to win your own one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine, that's six issues now, all you have to do is answer this question. What was Howie Weed's on-screen role in the special edition of The Empire Strikes Back? Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com or use the feedback form on our website by midnight, February 14th, Pacific Time, for your chance to win. One winner will be chosen from the correct entries. Now, back to Howie Weed's fascinating career at Industrial Light and Magic. It says on your IMDb page that you also worked on Fire in the Sky. Did you work on creature effects on that as well? Or? Yeah, that was one of the weirdest kind of projects I'd ever worked on. Um, I, I have to say that's like I I watched it once years ago and I can never rewatch it again because it's a personal thing for me, I guess, where I I can watch as many you know horror movies as you like or Star Trek movies with aliens, but those little gray aliens just creep me the hell out. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, there was this really long process of coming up with the design for those. And we had a whole bunch of model makers sculpting the grays. What we really wanted to do was like dial in something super primordial mm. about their design that would strike you on a basic level. I remember we had these discussions like, well, what is it us humans that are terrified of universally? So that, you know, no matter no matter what the design is, if it's reminiscent of this, it will be scary. Mm-hmm. And um, we came up with like the bottom of a spider, um, a skull, you know, that's the archetypal skull shape. Mm-hmm. And so for some of the some of the effects in the film, we we incorporated that that concept, like the um, the mechanism that comes down over actor DB Sweeney's face to kind of operate on him yeah. and inject something into his eye, some mysterious yeah. fluid into his eye. Um that was based on the underside of a spider, so we were hoping you know that would creep people out. And we, for a while there, we had we had different ideas. Like um, one guy had designed like just a bunch of chainsaws, and you know alien chainsaws. We're like, oh, you know, it's not really a horror movie, you know. Really, you know, we just kind of want to scare people, not like go with full on Fangoria horror. Uh-huh. So we went with that, and uh, that was one of the things I was most primarily. Uh, um, working on was that device that comes down over D.B. Sweeney. It was uh, myself, Scott McNamara, and Don Bees hmm. all working together on um, making that uh, that 
weird instrument. And um, I also worked on all the stuff that gets attached to D.B. Sweeney's face, which is as a sort of this like clockwork orange eye opener, uh, keeps his lids open, and um, this mechanism uh, that keeps his mouth open like, mm. so he can't close his jaw. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of fun. It was kind of fun and creepy. Mm. And then there was the actual aliens themselves, and um, I was able to help a little bit on that with molding and casting and that kind of thing. Right. But one of the weirder effects that I worked on for that was there's a moment in the movie where D.B. Sweeney, I think he's in his truck and he gets out and he looks up and he sees sort of like this image of the ship starting to break up into individual plates, kind of like a volcano is erupting and the lava is flowing down the edges of the volcano. It's a really brief oh, shot, right, but yeah. the, the director really wanted to see something like that. And so here we are with no computer graphics, no, and they don't want the animation department to do it. They just said, you guys in the model shop figure something out. <laughs> so we're like, okay, um, the ship's coming apart and there's sort of like lava or something. And I was like, okay, I think I got an idea. And what we did is we sculpted the bottom of the ship and we, we cast it in this clear resin, then we put it on a light table so that you could light this whole thing up. Mm. And under the under the light table, we kind of put these um, balls of light that could spin, kind of like disco lighting, so that when you turn those on, the sh- surface of the ship was just doing this pulsing disco lighting kind of thing. And that was my mm. idea for the uh, the lava effect. So we we played with that for a long time, taking mylar and crumpling it into balls and and taping it to little motors that spin. And so we're just using the reflections off the mylar that would give all these crazy weird shapes that would reflect under there. Mm. And so we got that kind of looking good. And then now we had to have the effect where the surface of the ship was was kind of disintegrating. So one effect I had thought of, I stole from the original Alien, where you see the acid eating through the decks of the ship. Mm-hmm. That was accomplished using styrofoam and acetone. And so uh, if you pour acetone onto styrofoam, it turns into this goopy web stuff and dissolves away really quickly. So I took some huge blocks of styrofoam and I brought them over to the bandsaw and I cut these really like potato chip thin lengths of styrofoam. So I had these almost like pieces of paper, but they're made of styrofoam. Mm. And I sprayed them black using streaks and tips, which is for your hair, like at Halloween. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I knew it, you know, it was something that just washes out in the shower. So it's not going to coat the styrofoam with anything that would prohibit the acetone from getting to it. Oh. So, but it, it looked, instead of white, it looked black. So I covered the ship with these, like, kind of, I broke the styrofoam up into big pieces and I kind of placed it all over the ship. And I got these spritzer bottles full of acetone. We actually shot this in the model shop. We had, instead of a soundstage, we had the camera crew guy guys come over. They took a big crane so they could put the camera way up high and shoot down to our model that was sort of sitting there like a table. Mm -hmm. And I put all the styrofoam chips on there, and we shot a test where we had about five people standing around with spritzer bottles shooting as fast as they could, little (laughs) geysers of acetone to make these chips disintegrate. And that actually looked okay. I think the camera guys were casting a suspicious brow on us, like, who are these guys? This is crazy. (laughs) And But then the footage was like, hey, hey. It's almost there, but we just need to animate these these things. These things have to sort of move a little bit, like they're flowing down a hill. Mm-hmm. Then it got a little crazier where I coated the whole thing with caro syrup, the, the model, the clear model. Mm. And, I put, and I put a china silk, like strips, of, like fingers of china silk uh, onto that caro syrup. And when china silk gets wet, it goes completely clear. So 
I put strips of China silk onto the Kerosurp, which is on top of that model that, that has the disco lighting on it. Mm-hmm. And then I put all the chips of black styrofoam on top of that. So now we had, if you pulled on the China silk, you had a way of kind of animating the black chips, kind of like moving, separating, moving away from each other. So you're sort of puppeteering the black chips while you're spraying them, and they're dissolving and they're moving. Huh. So in addition to the guys standing around with all of the spritzer bottles full of acetone, we had a whole bunch of guys crouched down low, pulling on these little strips of fabric uh, silk to kind of make the chips move around. So mm-hmm. it looked pretty neat. It was very abstract. It was like you're on you know, acid or something like that when you watched it in dailies. And I wasn't even sure it, it, it expressed exactly what the director had said because, you know, there's, there's only so much we could control. Right. But um, they liked it. And, you know, that's, that's, we think we shot it maybe four or five times. And we had this trough around the edges of the table to collect all the acetone and melted styrofoam and stuff. Mm-hmm. And those troughs were just full of goo. <laughs> By the time we were done, it was pretty disgusting. Wow. And I think everyone abandoned me when it was time to clean up as a punishment for coming up with such a stupid way of doing the effect. You know, you clean this up, weed. I'm like, all right. But anyway, it was fun. It was fun and weird. Mm. Because I've worked on other projects where you learn something about materials and you worked on some creature stuff and you worked on some model stuff. Like China silk is typically used for making miniature sails for boats and things because it's hmm. it's so flowy. Like mm-hmm. when you put a little bit of wind on it, it flutters and has the characteristics of giant schooner sails. Right. But knowing that that goes clear when it gets wet, just all these little bits and pieces kind of came together for that. Oh, very cool. How did you make the transition then from doing actual like physical creatures and models to doing digital work. There was this kind of this tipping point. A few people from our department had made the transition. Mm -hmm. One of them was Tony Summers and he was a painter, Jean Bolte, and she's a texture artist as well. And this fellow, Jack Hay, who was a model maker and he used to run the CAD machines and laser cutters in the model shop. So Mm -hmm. he was kind of sapped into the computer world already. They had made the transition after Jurassic Park and, The experience of seeing Jurassic Park was a huge motivator in thinking that, you know, the future might have something to do with computers, maybe possibly. And I I remember Jurassic Park was in production and I was in the model shop with my white lab coat, you know, making some, I don't even know what I was making at the time. Mm. But I remember they, you know, they had a loudspeaker system at ILM and they would announce everything over the loudspeaker system. (laughs) And they would have, you know, every day at about nine o'clock in the morning, you'd hear Jurassic Park dailies in D screening room, Jurassic Park dailies in D screening room right now, please. Hmm. And so I'd hear that and I'd think like, I wonder what that's looking like. And I asked a bunch of guys, I said, hey, tomorrow when they announce that, do you want to go sneak in the back of the theater and just sort of take a look, you know, real quick and see what it looks like? And everybody was like, yeah, we're going to do it. (laughs) And so the next day came and they announced it, Jurassic Park Dailies. And I said, okay, let's go, guys. And everybody went like, "Ah, I don't care anymore. You got, you go if you want. (laughs) So I was like, all right, I'm going to go. I mean, this is going to take me 15 minutes. Who cares? So I threw off my coat and I I actually waited a couple of minutes because I wanted to come into theater after it was dark so that nobody saw me. I didn't know if I'd get in trouble or anything. (laughs) So there was this long staircase and I snuck up the back and I, and I waited and then I went in through these huge heavy double doors to get into the theater. And as I walked in, what was on the screen was an animation test of a Gallimimus running. So it was sort of a top view and a side view of just a gray shaded Mm -hmm. Gallimimus and it was running and it was, it's sort of like seeing like a, with a sense you've never had before because it, everything was perfect. There was, 
motion blur, which I'd never seen. I mean, there was go there was go motion on like Dragon Slayer, but this was just absolutely perfect. So there was motion blur on something that was running. There was uh, the top view. You could see the tail following through with the gait of the of the legs moving back and forth. And there was like a rib cage that was sculpted into it. So it was as it was running, you could detect the ribs kind of pushing out the skin left and right as it was running. Hmm. And I just stood there with, and I think my jaw literally dropped open, even with just a gray <laughs> shaded dinosaur. And I literally said out loud because I was so stunned. I just went, Oh shit. <laughs> Cause I, I knew, I knew this was huge. And, um, and I waited for a while and I saw some painted dinosaurs on screen and they were extreme close up. I thought maybe that there would be some long shots in the movie of like, you know, a dinosaur on the distance, you know, looking over a tree or something like mm-hmm. that done by a computer. But they weren't, they were fearless. They were going right in there and, and looking at everything really close. And I remember Dennis Muren, the visual effects supervisor, and, and he was making notes for the artists on little tiny things that needed to be adjusted. There was maybe the textures were just a little bit stretched over, over the eyes or under the chin. Mm-hmm. And I had noticed that too. And I was thinking to myself, aha, see, it's not perfect. And then I was hearing <laughs> the comments and I'm like, oh no, they're going to make it perfect. <laughs> and so I kind of, my head hanging low, I went back to the model shop and, and put my lab coat back on and people said, so what did you see? How was it? Was it any good? And I said, guys, guys, I don't know how to tell you this, but it looks like, it looks like ILM built a time machine, took National <laughs> Geographic and put them in the time machine, went back and took high-res movies of dinosaurs and then came back and showed it to us. And they all just sort of stood there like, yeah, right. And I said, no, no, seriously, man, <laughs> this stuff looks great. And there was like, yeah, right. Yeah, I think it was the writing was sort of on the wall at that point that the future had something to do with computer graphics in a big way. Yeah. It took me a while to kind of come to a place where I decided that maybe computer graphics is, is a, what I wanted to do because it was a whole it was a whole new thing. It was a completely different department. You were leaving the comfort of the model shop where all your working companions are. Mm-hmm. You have all this history to go and learn something completely different that's totally alien. And I mean, I wasn't even 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 used to rooms with carpeting when <laughs> when I went to the uh, the head of the CG department. And I said, you know, hey, you know, if, if there's any possibility of training to do this stuff, I'd really be interested. And they said, actually, actually, you know what? We're interested in getting, um, we've been hiring a lot of people from a technical background point of view. So we've got a lot of people with, you know, who can write code and that kind of thing. But we're also thinking maybe it's time to, you know, we have tools advanced enough where we can have someone step into this and not have a computer graphics degree. And they can actually do artistic work in the computer. Because hmm. ILM had just come up with a sculpting program that was intuitive and you didn't have to type in numbers to say where each point exists in the world. You could push it, push the computer model around with a what looks like a little clear sphere on the computer and kind of sculpt like you would sculpt clay. Mm-hmm. And so I said, yeah, sign me up. They actually made me an offer and for, to train and actually work on a film and train. And it's sort of like starting over again. And like I, it, was, it was very strange. And you, you had all this background in film, but you were trying to figure out, how do I get that into this computer? Yeah. How do I – I know how to sculpt clay. I don't know how to sculpt this mesh of wireframe that's hanging in the air with this, with this ball. That's really weird. It, it took a while, but and I really appreciate that they took people from their their artistic ranks and they and they gave them an opportunity to learn and train and, and see how it went. So, oh, that's very cool. Yeah, it was it was a really cool experience and a really tense experience because I so I so wanted to succeed. I wanted to win, you know, sculpt <laughs> something and have it look great. And it took a while. 
before I finally reached that, oh, I get it. So if I do it like this, I can get these kind of results. Okay, okay, okay. I can run with that. But for a while, it was I was just, you know, what am I doing here? This is really, <laughs> really hard. I have to learn computer coding and I have to learn Unix and, you know. That kind of thing. So right. it was, you know, and my model shop friends would see me walking around, you know, when I had a break, and they're like, "Hey, how's it going?" And I'd say, "I don't know, man. <laughs> this is re- this is really hard." And they're like, "Well, you decided to do it, so it's up to you." Like, oh, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a good experience. And then from there, you ended up working on the special edition of The Empire Strikes Back, right? Yes, the special edition of Star Wars happened concurrently with pre-production on the Star Wars prequels. Mm. So the prequels had already started and there were people up at Skywalker Ranch designing like crazy, you know, Doug Chang and all of his fantastic artists. And there were some model shop people up there as well, building prototype miniatures. And so all of us down in the island model shop, we, would, we knew that that was all going on and we would, you know, kind of get periodic updates on, you know, how's it going up there? Oh, it's, you know, it's really looking neat, you know. you know. Can you tell us anything about it? Sorry. <laughs> and uh, But then like right in there, a, uh, a restoration of the original Star Wars started to happen because it was fading. Like Star, the original Star Wars film negative was actually in doubt. Oh, wow. And so they decided they better do something about it now before it gets any worse. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the uh, wipes that you see in the original Star Wars where it you know, transitions from one scene to the next with a, with a kind of mm-hmm. a, a wipe that goes across scene, they didn't have any of that footage because oh. that had been part of an optical process and the original footage had been lost. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they, they were struggling of even how to put Star Wars back together again. And I think at that point, the notion of updating Star Wars kind of came into view. And we started getting information that there's new shots coming and, and fixes and additions. And we're, we're all kind of like, what? <laughs> we're, what are we doing? And, and so one of the things that came up after we had done all the work on Star Wars, which for me included adding a, a creature to the cantina scene, which I really that's a dream come true oh, for me. Cool. Uh, yeah, it was the the Ket Wall, K E T W O L, which uh, in reverse means low tech. I thought that <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, there was a. I think in the original Star Wars, there's a werewolf creature, mm-hmm. and uh, George never loved that with the red glowing eyes. Mm-hmm. He never loved that creature for some reason. He decided let's let's substitute something else. And so Terrell Whitlatch, who's one of the designers up at the ranch, came up with this with this sort of elephant creature. And I was fortunate enough to be in the shop at a time when I could pick that work up and do the sculpture and the puppeteering and everything on that. So that was really neat. And just to, you know, mm. just to have added something to the original Star Wars, mm-hmm. what? That was awesome. <laughs> so um but then um from that, from that restoration of Star Wars, there became a restoration of all of the original. Like, we better fix everything. And additions to everything. And one of the sequences that they earmarked in Empire for a little extra, you know, mm-hmm. was um, the Wampa sequence. And George had never really been able to film that scene the way he wanted to. Um, there was an attempt to film a guy on stilts out in the snow on mm. the original Empire. And it was a gallant attempt, but there was just no way it could work. If you have ever watched the footage, uh, which I think is out there in the form of uh, 
nice tri-blooper kind of footage, which I don't like to think of it that way. I mean, they were really busting their butts to make this thing work. Yeah. But the guy in the suit who was there, they were, I think the Wampa was supposed to be, you know, 15 feet tall, wow. 16 feet tall. They were trying to make him really walk in stilts in snow that was a couple of feet deep. And so he could take one step and then it would just collapse like a house of cards. Wow. Just poof, face down in the snow. <laughs> and they, there's like a montage on somewhere online. You can see that happening over and over again. And so <laughs> uh, from that point, they uh, they got some shots using a Phil Tippett um, like shoulders and up miniature puppet um, for the shot where Luke is on his tauntaun and he says, you sent something, buddy? Mm-hmm. And the Wampa's face pops up into scream and you get that kind of moment. <laughs> and that's a much smaller puppet, which the head's about as big as a basketball. Mm. And there's some shoulders. And that was uh, done by Phil Tippett and his guys. And totally effective. Love that creature. Thought that was a really cool design. Yeah. So then the stuff that happens in the cave later, when you come back and Luke is upside down, uh, suspended from the ceiling, and the, the Womp is off in his corner doing who knows what, they had another attempt at filming the Wampa, and they made a whole different costume. And that one, I think, it just never sold on film is is the problem. Mm-hmm. with It was a... A kind of a more whimsical design, and it, it um, ultimately George s- decided to uh, shoot it, but always have the hands of the Wampa in front of its face. So that's why you've got this one shot where hmm. uh, it's coming at Luke, but you can't see its face, and it's just hands coming at the camera. Mm-hmm. So the face wasn't really working in that particular shot. So George was just sort of trying to shoot that sequence and not really getting what he really wanted, which was, you know, to see the thing for a minute. <laughs> you know, and I think audiences actually loved the way it came out originally, where it was sort of like Jaws, you never, where you don't get to see the shark much, yeah. you know. The sound work by Ben Burt was so amazing. And just the idea of this ominous thing off in the corner, and you're like iced to the ceiling and can't get to your lightsaber and all that stuff. That was working for people. Mm-hmm. But George George wanted to see it. So we had some meetings. And the way he put it was, I just want a brief moment that's to startle the audience, just so you can see it for a second. At that point, we were talking about maybe doing it as a CG character. Mm. That was the new cool thing to do. And I remember the saying was, if you want to see something you've never seen before, do it in computer graphics. Mm-hmm. And George said, well, you know, it doesn't have to be something we've never seen before. I just want to be able to see this thing for a second. So I went back, after those meetings, I went back to the model shop and I sculpted a little study model that would show if we built this as a guy in a suit, Mm -hmm. how the proportions would work over a human form. And I got one of those wooden posable models that sketch artists used. Mm -hmm. And um, I posed it in kind of like, you know, the crouch down, you know, lowland gorilla pose. And I glued all the joints so the thing couldn't move anymore. And then I covered half of it in clay, like kind of the left half was just covered in clay with the proportions that I thought the wampa kind of looked like to me. I mean, and you never really saw it. So it's like there was no wrong way of doing it. But I did this kind of big monkey-ish form on the one side. And the next meeting we had where we were going to make some decisions, I brought that with me and I had it on the meeting table. I remember George kind of looked at it and there was a pitch to do it as computers one more time. Mm -hmm. And I said, George, I did the sculpt to kind of give an idea of how it could be done as a guy in a suit. And I think it could really work. And we'll just build the cave to scale with with him to make him look big. Mm. He looked at it for a minute, and I think <laughs> he knew I really, really, really wanted to do it as this guy in a suit. <laughs> and so he kind of went like, "All right, let's let's do it as a guy in a suit." And I was like, "Yeah, all right, <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome." So, um, you know, and then the 
kind of the way I got into the suit, that me being inside the suit was... You were uh, inside the suit. Oh, yeah. I was the performer. So you're the Wampa. I am the special... I like to say I'm the special edition Wampa because there's been Wampas <laughs> before. Very so nice. I really, really wanted to do it. And um, I knew from my friends who had done um, suit work in films before where like, you know, their company had built monster suits and then they were the one on the set in the suit mm-hmm. that it could be pretty grueling. And I always thought like, who's who in their right mind would want to be inside a rubber suit all day long with the lights and everything. Yeah. It sounds horrible. <laughs> but then I thought, well, if there's ever a time to put up with being inside a monster suit, this is it, <laughs> you know, empire strikes back, man. So we started uh, building the suit. Um, there was a fantastic uh, costume designer and, and costume maker, Annie Polland, who's uh, passed since then, fortunately. But uh, she was kind of uh, heading up, building the body of the suit. And mm-hmm. um, uh, Mark Siegel is a sculptor at, at ILM. He's still there as a, and now as a computer sculptor. Uh, and he started working on the, the head and the face. And then um, Wendy Mortensen was working on it as well. And she's a fantastic puppet maker. And I think Don Bees was, was also working on it uh, as well. So there were some animatronics to it, um, to the face, making the brows move and stuff. So we started working on all that stuff, and production sort of left us alone. It would come over every once in a while and check on our progress. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, you know what would be a really great guide for us building this version of the Wampa is the one that Phil Tippett did, the one that pops up in front of the Wampa in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I know that's up at the Skywalker archives because it's in a big acrylic case. It's been there for years. Every time I've been there, it's there. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. Let's, let's have him bring it down so we can have it in the model shop and look at it for like as a guide. And so I, I called up there and, I, and they, they were like, uh, yeah, how can we help? And I said, well, we're working on this Empire Strikes Back Wampa sequence. And it, you know what would be really cool is if you guys could send down, just to truck it down to us at, at ILM, mm-hmm. the Wampa inside the big acrylic case. And there was like this moment of silence. And they said, <laughs> you know what? That's leaving tomorrow for a big tour around Japan. Oh, no. And I said, what? Are you, you kidding me? It sits there for years. And the minute we need it for something, it's leaving. And they're like, oh, sorry, man. You can come up and take pictures of it, though. And I was like, oh, OK. So I'll go up. I can't believe it. So we went up there and took as many good pictures as we could of it. And it is so cool. It's a great – it has so much character the way that they did it for that one puppet. So we had pictures. I can't believe we didn't have the actual thing there to look at. There was this point where we had gotten a certain uh, amount down the way. We'd sculpted claws and we'd sculpted teeth and mm-hmm. you know certain things were coming together. But we needed an actor. We had to build this thing around proportions and stuff. And so – I remember I was walking down the hallway, uh, in, not in the model shop, but in, in the regular part of ILM, and Dennis Murin happened to be walking the other way. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, Dennis, you know, I think we're kind of getting to a point where we're going to have to get somebody to be in the suit. <laughs> and he said, he said, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, we're going to, you know, have to, ca- I guess we'll, I guess we'll talk to production and they'll, they'll go down to a casting agent and we'll get something going. And I said, well, what would you think of me being in the suit? And he kind of looked at me and he, you know, he knew, he knew, he knew I really wanted it. And so he said, all right, you can be in this suit. And I was like, oh man, this is awesome. So I went back, <laughs> went back and told the guys, I get to be in the suit. So, which, which is in a way for people building the suit, it's kind of a blessing. It's like, oh wow. We, so we don't have an actor we have to be nice to. It's just you. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. And um, and I'm always there. So anytime they want, they can just have me try on the hands or tr- you know fit the helmet that right. has the head on it or anything. You don't have to like have a special day where the actor flies up from L.A. and you know there's a, everything has to be done in one day. It can just kind of organically keep putting the thing together and trying it on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember. Uh, there was a day 
where you know we were about mm, halfway done. So there was a head, there was a body that had no fur on it, there was feet and some hands, mm-hmm. and um, the fur was all sitting on a table off in the corner, and that was getting ready. And um, the production wanted to come over and see where we were so far. So we're like, okay, let's let's put everything on for the first time, every absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, the head actually was built over. A, a construction worker's helmet. So there was a ratchet in the back, like a, like a knob that you could turn. After you put the helmet on, you'd twist the knob and the helmet would get, the band around your head would get tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh-huh. And I remember I really didn't want that helmet to move at all. So I kept telling him, you know, do it one more click. And they would <laughs> click, you know, get a little bit tight. I'm like, ooh, that's pretty tight, but maybe a little <laughs> bit tighter. And they click. I was like, oh, that's painful. Perfect. Okay. And um, we, uh, we put the whole thing on, and what I what I didn't know, I've been playing a lot of little practical jokes on people throughout the throughout the year, and I was kind of known as the the, the practical joke fairy, <laughs> and people would find things in their your lockers and in their toolboxes and stuff, <laughs> and uh, I get like little plastic cockroaches to put under people's coffee cups and stuff like that, which I found hysterical. Anyway, <laughs> um, so what somebody had done is they had they had bought some anchovies and they had put them up into the wampas mask, and. I had no idea. So they, when it came time to put the helmet on, I was like, okay, okay they're, they're on their way over. Put, a, put everything on me. And they, they put the helmet on and cranked, the, cranked that band down so I couldn't take it off. Mm-hmm. And within seconds, I could smell the intense aroma of anchovies just like going up into my nostrils. And it was just horrific. And I was about to yell and scream when through my little eye holes, I could see like shiny shiny uh, leather shoes. So I knew the executives had come into the room. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, just be cool, man. Don't, you know, work on this later. And I just, (laughs) that just reeked the entire time. And I was posing, you know, turning left, turning right, taking footsteps. And and the executives were like, oh, that looks pretty good. I think that's going to work. Well, let's look at it from over here. And I was just the whole time dying, like, oh my God. I think I was like crying (laughs) with this anchovy stuff coming out. And then they finally went, okay, looking great. And I saw them all leave. And I, I said, get this thing off of me. And they they unclicked it, and they were all – the whole crew was standing around in hysterics just <laughs> laughing. Um, but, yeah, to this day, they bring it up like, hey, Howie, uh, you're going to get some lunch with anchovies? It's like, ah, <laughs> shut up, you guys. But um, but anyway, uh, once the once the whole thing was all together, there was, like, adjustments along the way. I remember at one point we made the feet, like, way too long, and when I walked, it looked like almost like flippers sticking out in front and the, hmm. the weight of the, of the nails, the nails were like really huge on the feet, um, made it look like kind of clown feet. Hmm. So we kept cutting things back and moving things around until we had what we thought was a pretty good, a pretty good sculpture. At, towards the end, what we had was this muscle suit uh, that was made out of all these individual uh, pieces, kind of think of like um, a football player mm-hmm. with all the different pieces that, he, that they have to wear on their shoulders, but they're not, it's not all one big thing that's all glued together. All these pieces move independently of each other mm. on, a, on a football uniform, so, which gives the, you know, the football player can raise his hands and the shoulders will move up and things like that. Right. So that's sort of the, the foundation of how we built the wampa under, undersuit, what was under the fur. It's just all these pieces that were sewn into a uh, black leotard and you could kind of move around and the muscles would slide over each other. So it was pretty neat. Mm. Um, and then the fur was applied over that. And when we applied the fur at first, it, it sort of looked like a giant fuzzball. But then it, it, we got in there with uh, scissors and trimmers and started you know, literally sculpting in all of the shape that's around the shoulders and the arms and making them look, you know, fierce. Yeah. And um, 
so we we got that looking pretty good with a lot of hairspray and a lot of like you know dippity do kind of mixing it into the fur mm-hmm. and i think that's that's one of the things that you know i've seen a lot of uh of fan attempts uh at doing the wampa and i that's the step that seems to be missed is they don't they're, they're afraid to cut the fur that they've put on there you really got to shape the wampa and give him some anatomy and and uh make it look like he's he's been around for a while so he's got oily fur He's got mm. clumped, clumped fur and oily fur. It's not this fuzzy thing at all. Um, so we got that. That looked pretty neat. Uh, I remember it was funny when you're getting in and out of the suit. The suit would look about half as big as me <laughs> before you put it on. It was just this shriveled up thing, almost like putting on a bathing suit. It's like, that's going to fit over me, <laughs> but it'll stretch. And uh, yeah, once I got in there, the final step being to put your arms, you, know, you put your legs in first and put your arms in mm. and then just pulling two people, pulling the whole thing up onto me and, and like snapping it up the back. Mm-hmm. So when it was on, it was really like pulling from every direction. It was on me tight. <laughs> One of the last things we did is we we got a um, a double boiler, and we melted some paraffin, you know, just uh, candle wax, and but it's just white with no no tint in it at all. And we would take that with brushes and splash it up into the fur and as big a clumps as we could all over the place. And when that would cool down and solidify, we could walk up to it. And we just with our bare hands, push it around, push that wax around a little bit, and it would crackle, mm-hmm. and that would look like snow that had gotten up into the fur and and uh. clung to it. And that was a great detail. And the more we, the more we were pretty, you know, tentative at first because how are you going to get the wax out if it doesn't work? Right. But at once, once we figured out that technique, we were like, more wax, man. That looks <laughs> great. And so we really clumped a lot of that stuff in there. And, you know, it was sort of like anything to take the curse off it looking like a giant plush doll. Mm-hmm. Let's make it look real. <laughs> and um, we pretty much left it. We, 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 we took the, the front and we were looking at pictures of polar bears. And we were like, well, underneath a polar bear's mouth, it's always, there's always this yellow kind of area where it's been eating a seal or something and that's mm-hmm. what's left, you know? So we did the same thing. We got out airbrushes and we put this sort of yellow coming down the front of him. Mm-hmm. But we were still pretty conservative because we thought, what if George gets on the set and says, why is it yellow? <laughs> and, and you know, there'd be no way for us to, to fix it other than like white primer or something like that. <laughs> so we were pretty, you know, we were pretty conservative. Um, and uh, so when we finally got it onto the set, uh, which had been built by these amazing Island model shop guys. They built this half scale uh, set mm. uh, of the ice cave, and you know, using crumpled foil and spraying it with spray snow and hanging icicles and everything. It was really, really neat. Wow. We got me in there with the creature suit on, and got the lighting guys in there, and they lit the hell out of it. And um, it was the middle of the summer, unfortunately, so it was already almost a hundred degrees outside. And because we were going to shoot high speed, like I mentioned before. Uh, it was going to have what they call a wall of fire on the set, which means these giant lights that have <laughs> nine bulbs each. That each wow. one, it's like having nine full-on 1K lights on you. So the amount of light they were pushing onto that set was just like you know an inferno. Wow. And um, there was, we didn't really didn't make the suit to breathe at all. We didn't care. <laughs> well, it was just me again, too. Probably if we had a real actor, we would have done something. But, uh, but we did have a hose that went up through the ankle uh, and came out so that if you hook that up to an air supply, uh, you could fill the suit with cool air. Mm. We were shooting about, I don't know, 50 PSI 
of air up into the suit. And that's what basically would save me. Every time they hooked that thing up, I would feel this cool breeze go up inside the suit. And it would just be like, it'd be like going from like being inside an oven to being just like normal room temperature in like an, in like an instantly. Wow. And I was just like, whoa, yeah, thank goodness. Keep that thing plugged in, man. That's, that's great. <laughs> For the actual shoot, we did the whole thing again with like uh, a rehearsal day with wedge, where they shot wedges and played with the lighting and kind of picked what they were going to do. Mm -hmm. um, that was the day before the actual shoot. And we shot the whole thing the next day in maybe four hours. So it was over pretty quick. But on the actual shoot day, nobody was really sure if George himself was going to come and direct it or if we were just sort of like a B-roll team and we're going to kind of just cowboy it on our own. Mm -hmm. And we had effects supervisor Dave Carson as the cinematographer on that shoot. And he's a fantastic artist and he knows his way around a camera. Mm -hmm. So I had no fear that it was going to look good. We got to the point where it was finally time to shoot and they disconnected the hose. So I immediately got super hot and they put the helmet on and cranked it down over my head. And I crouched down into the first position and we we're going to do a shot where, where I kind of just look up over my shoulder and kind of turn towards the camera. Mm -hmm. I remember I was ready to go, ready to go. And, and there was no sound and nothing was happening and I was ready to go and there was nothing happening. And finally, someone came over to me and said, uh, Howie, uh, you can relax. George just showed up. I went, <laughs> okay. So I sort of just stood up, waited a few minutes, and, and George actually jumped up onto the camera dolly and was looking through the camera himself, mm -hmm. which I thought was so cool because I just have seen those pictures of him on the set, you know, looking through the camera. It was like, look, it's the living version of all those <laughs> pictures you see of him doing stuff like that. That's so awesome. And uh, yeah, no way was he going to just stand idly by. He was going to shoot this thing himself. So uh, uh, George uh, said, okay, let's just shoot this thing one time and see what we've got. And um, so I went back to my crouching position and I heard action. So in my mind, what I wanted to do was like an homage to Ray Harryhausen, like, you know, one of his Sinbad movies. Mm -hmm. So I kind of did this like, you know, elbows back, arms bent, really crouched over, you know, head kind of looking up. And I, I kind of did this, this sort of, you know, weird giant monkey kind of thing where I kind of <laughs> looked around and I heard this cut and George jumped off the dolly and trudged out onto the set into the fake snow and he stood about six inches from my face huh. and he looked at me and he said, can you hear me? And I could hear him loud and clear. And I thought, well, geez, if I respond, he'll know that that was kind of dumb to kind of be so loud. So I just sort of shook my head like, yes, sir, I can definitely hear you, you know? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I don't know what the heck that was supposed to be, but what I want <laughs> you to be is sort of like a dumb bear, like a big, dumb bear. Big dumb bear that can only think one thing at a time. Like when you're eating, you're thinking, I'm eating, I'm eating, I'm eating. And if you hear something, you're thinking, what, what, what? And you can't think about your eating anymore because you've only got enough capacity to think of one thing at a time. Mm. And you're really slow and you're really dumb. <laughs> and I said, I said, and I just sort of nodded like, yes, sir. And uh, <laughs> he walked back over the camera and he I got down in position again and he yelled action. And I was pretending to eat this, you know, big sort of tauntaun leg thing that I had made in the model shop. Right. And uh, it's kind of like a Fred Flintstone, you know, rib. <laughs> and I'm, I'm eating this thing. And I heard him say, okay, turn. And I, I turned what I thought would be like being underwater, like slow. Mm -hmm. And he said, slower. So I just went back to my first position and I, I, I looked over my shoulder even slower. And he said, dumber. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I went back to my first position and I kind of looked. You know, I didn't know, how do I do dumber? And I, <laughs> I kind of looked over and I turned and he said, okay, okay, go back to your first position. And they just kept the camera rolling. 
And he said, okay, now turn and sort of start walking towards me. And I, and I was turning and moving and he said, slower, dumber, slower, dumber. <laughs> and so I'm just doing this like really lumbering, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, with each footstep, my whole body was kind of like, you know, kind of like sh- sinking down back and forth. And, uh, I noticed that I was just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Like mm. it was reaching this like inferno inside the suit and they were just going to shoot. Like mm. I just heard the camera, I could hear the hammer like going. And then I, he said, okay, now do this. You know, and I crouched down a little bit lower. And finally I reached this point where my heart, I could literally feel my heart in my chest <laughs> pounding like boom, 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 boom. And I thought, I've never felt that before. <laughs> and I kind of waved my hands like I wa- like waving off an airplane, like I can't, that's it for now. And, and I heard someone say, cut. I think it was Rick McCallum, the producer said, cut. Mm-hmm. And, they, and someone said, okay, we've got it. That's it. And, and that was it. They, they, they felt they got that shot. And uh, wow. so someone, someone came over and uh, they, put, they cook, hooked the air back up and my heart rate went back down and <laughs> the inferno went back down. And I thought they started unsnapping the head because so we had these snaps that went all the way around the, uh, the body to keep the, the, the fur from the head connected to the body. Right. And um, I said, hurry, hurry, get these things off of me. And I thought, this is it. This is my chance face to face with George Lucas. I'm going to get a chance to, to actually, you know, say something to him after having been directed by him. This is cool. So they took the head off as quick as they could. And just as they whipped the helmet off, I looked over to the camera and all I could see was George's leg leaving the doorway to the outside and the door (laughs) closing like click. Uh And he was gone, man. (laughs) So (laughs) I was like, oh, I can't believe it. But Rick Rick was still there and he was like, and he came over and he was like, "Ah, that looked great. You did a great job. And I said, well, thanks a lot. Thank thank you very much. That must have been really gratifying. Yeah, it was was neat that he, that George showed up and that he actually shot it and then he gave it his own spin, you know, Mm. and, uh, and another thing I learned about George is that he does not shy away from gore. If you give him a chance. Mm. He will he will gore it up because um, we had a bucket full of uh, like kind of translucent blood mm-hmm. with uh, pieces of like shredded latex in it to look kind of like flesh. Right. And right before the shot, we would take this goopy stuff and put it all over the giant rib I was eating, and and put it all over my mouth. And when I would touch the rib to my mouth, it would create this stringy goober. Mm-hmm. And and George loved that. He kept <laughs> he kept saying, you know, put as much as you want on there, man. Just you know, really, really, you know, more, more, more. It's fine with me. And so <laughs> instead of using like a little tiny brush, we started, you know, using giant spoons to kind of get the stuff up there because it looked really neat and we didn't know how grisly he wanted this whole thing to appear. So right. yeah, gu- guts and gore, uh, Mr. <laughs> Lucas does not shy away from. So. <laughs> Is there any um, personal projects you're working on or, or uh, your website or anything you'd like to plug? I don't have a personal website at this point, um, okay. which I guess I better get off my tush and do it. <laughs> but um, I noticed right at the end of the new year, a friend of mine, uh, Steve Applin, who's a fantastic artist uh, working at Double Negative in uh, the UK, uh, had was talking about uh, having completed a design challenge where it was like a, a monster sketch a day for an entire year. So oh, wow. every every single day you would do something. And he had done that with a friend, and he was sort of spiking the ball on January first, saying, "I did it! I did it! I'm the curse is over! I'm you know I've <laughs> I've completed it." And I thought, "Wow, does, yeah, drawing a day! What a way, great way to motivate yourself!" And so I contacted a a friend at work, and I said, "You want to do this?" And he said, "I'm in." So we're in the middle of that, and so far I'm keeping up where we do one creature a day. Oh wow! And that's my design challenge, and it's great because. For any artists out there who are struggling to put together a portfolio or just sharpen their skills, 
doing a creature a day is a great way to do it because you're out of your comfort zone so fast. You use up all your ideas that you, you know, the well that you go back to mm-hmm. over and over again because you only pick up, you only do something once in a while right. is out of there. And you've got to like start thinking of what else can I do? What else is there? What else, you know, it's got to be totally different than the last thing I did. So, so we'll see if I make it to the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a cool project. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Howie, so much for being on. Sure, uh, it was a pleasure. And about that Creature a Day project, Howie's been at it for more than a year, but he's still aiming to make it to 365. And I've heard inklings that he may publish a book of the project once he's done. So if that happens, we'll be sure to let you know. And remember that Cinefix 144 and 145 are now available to order on Cinefix.com and in the Cinefix iPad app, which you can get through the link on our website. Thanks again to our guest, Howie Weed, and as ever, Digital Drew for all of the music in this episode. You can find more of his music at digitaldrew.com. That's spelled digital, D-R-O-O.com. Thanks also to Mike Gower for our beautiful Aperture logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. See you next time. <laughs>